Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, we, we can go ahead and throw up that first slide there, Peter. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking today about why what we believe about Jesus matters so much. Um, but I want you to kind of picture for a moment, if you'll go with me um, into a metaphor, and just imagine life like a really long transatlantic voyage, pre-GPS. <laughs> and, you know, you, you set off, and at first things are kind of cozy and familiar in childhood, but then pretty quickly uh, you hit a point where you are just kind of out in this vast nothingness, trying to figure out where the heck to go. I don't know if y'all have ever felt that way. Um, have any of you ever been out like in the middle of the ocean before? Show of hands. It is freaky, right? Like you look in any direction and as far as you can see, it's just horizon, right? Um, and you know, you, you trust that there's a captain there who knows how to, get, how to get you there. But I think a lot of times it can feel like in uh, trying to figure out how to live life, trying to figure out how to think, what to think, what opinions to have about things, what to believe. Um, like you're just trying to, to chart your course in the middle of the ocean with no GPS, just hoping you eventually land on the other side where you need to be, right? And in the olden days, right, the way that they would chart their course was with the stars, and the brightest star, kind of the starting point for this would be the North Star, right? Um, and so, you know, every night you would kind of look up and, and chart your course based on that. And <clears throat> I think what we see in John uh, and what I think we believe as Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, is that Jesus is the North Star of our theology and also subsequently our lives. Um, so yeah, what we'll be talking about is Christology today. That's the next slide there. Um, oh, good. Yeah, just hit one more. There we go. Sorry about that. So we're going to be talking about Christology today. Uh, I had a couple of people ask me, what's Christology? Uh, this one, it's nice. You can kind of break it down. You think of all the ologies that you study, biologies like the study of life and, you know, theologies, the study of God, theos, Christology, essentially, right, is the study of Christ. Uh, you Google the definition and the definition that comes up is pretty serviceable. It says Christology is the branch of Christian theology relating to the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, in other words, I think you could call it the quest to know Jesus. Christology is the quest to know Jesus. And for someone who's an academic or someone who is figuring out what they believe about Jesus, I think that quest to know Jesus just occurs up here in the brain, right? Like, what are the facts? Well, you know, what's, what's the good theology? What are the statements I need to affirm? And that's it. Uh, if we call ourselves Christians, if we're taking the name of Christ and applying that to define ourselves, then the quest to know Jesus occurs in our whole selves, right? 
our dreams, our hearts, our minds, our intellect, all of that is encompassed in that quest. If you could go back to that previous slide, uh, you know, we're going to be going on a quick little tour through a little bit of Christology. This is the Christology road. I made it up yesterday. Uh, this is not an official thing. Did you like that water sound? Um, this is where uh, we'll, we'll take us over the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. So we're going to start out, as Brandon was mentioning, um, just looking at the extent to which what we believe about Jesus mattered to John, right? We're in First John, probably a good place to start. And then we'll kind of take it forward from there a little bit and see how not only did it matter to John and a few disciples who knew Jesus, but that the whole church of which we're a part cared a lot about this, right? And we're going to look at that and just see, you know, what were the things that the church agreed you know, we can disagree on a lot of things, but to be Christians, we're all going to agree on this, right? Um, and we'll see how much it matters to us. But then towards the end, I want us to think more in the present day, examining ourselves and thinking, what does it look like to build a Christology that doesn't just agree with some basics because I want to call myself a Christian, but actually influences our whole lives? Does that sound good? Does anyone want to add any stops? Any restroom breaks? No? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, well, let's dive in. Uh, the first thing, Christology, Jesus, in general, mattered to John. So if you can go forward a couple slides here. Um, I think we can downplay just how insane it is that a group of Jewish men, being the disciples, um, were living life as usual, and then suddenly all rethought their entire worldviews and changed the entire trajectory of their lives based on this guy that they met. Like, that's kind of wild. Like, I've had people who influenced me quite a bit but I don't think I've had any one person who I'm like, yeah, I was doing fine. But then when I was 20, you know, I met this one person and I completely changed every part of my life and what I wanted to do for work. And like, like that's a lot, right? John, as a Jew, was aggressively monotheistic, right? There is one God and he held on to that. And if you read the Old Testament, in some ways, uh, it's just kind of God trying to teach the Jews to stop having other gods, right? And, and he keeps on, like, they keep on coming back and they're like, yes, oh my goodness, you're like, you're right. Like, these other gods that these other cultures around us are worshiping have, like, child sacrifice and prostitution. You're so right, we should stop. And then a generation later, they're like, we're back, you know, and they, and they try to mix it back in. And so much of the prophets, you kind of see God saying, like, I don't want to make you go through hardship, but you have to learn, like you are a people called to be different and you can't be different while worshiping these other gods that are so evil and the way people worship them is so evil, right? And so by the time that you make it through um, the time of the prophets who are constantly calling them to return to God and to be faithful, you know, they have held on to that. They're kind of like, listen, we have one God, and whenever we try to have more than one God, things don't go well. 
And so imagine uh, how hard of a sell it is for a person to show up and be like, I'm God's son. I am also God. We are both God, right? And don't get me wrong. We, you know, I consider myself a monotheist, right? But a Trinitarian. But yeah, it was such a hard sell to say like, Yahweh, like our God is now here and he's revealed himself to us. There was no category for, yeah, he's gonna walk around among us. So, so John met this other man, walked with him for probably three years or so, and then concluded that this man was Yahweh. The same God who told Moses, just this great figure from the history of the Israelites, you can't, if you see my face, you would die. And John walked with this man and concluded, this is the same God. And he didn't just kind of think that. He wasn't like, oh man, like I won't tell anybody, but I think that might be the case. It was enough that he dedicated his whole life to the message of Jesus. It was enough that by the time you read 1 John, he talks about a lot of topics and they are all in terms of Jesus and who Jesus is, which is wild, right? He, he believed in Jesus enough to face exile. Um, and the same goes for the other disciples. Most of them were killed for their faith, right? Same for Paul. And they didn't just believe in the existence of Jesus. They believed that he was God and that he was fully human uh, and that he was a real historical person that they actually interacted with. Um, one of the terms that shows up in 1 John a lot that I think we read as, as contemporary Westerners and freak out about is the Antichrist. Um, yeah, I don't know. I read that and I'm like, oh no, like growing up, my family genuinely believed that certain political figures might be the Antichrist, right? And we were like, oh no, right? I think there's this idea that, oh, the Antichrist is one person that will come in the end times and be influential and lead people away from Jesus. And you read in 1 John and he uses the word Antichrist and that can throw us off, but look at what he says. This is 1 John 2.18. He says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. He says, the antichrist is a liar. And who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, meaning that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the father and son. No one who denies the son has the father. Meaning if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you don't know Yahweh. You don't know God. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And then he doubles down, 1 John 4. Uh, Brandon was mentioning this. He says, dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, 
which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And it's kind of interesting. I think we, we think of the Antichrist again as like this villainous figure. And I think John does too, but he's saying anyone who, who tries to sell you on this idea that Jesus is not the Messiah or is not fully God or did not actually come in flesh, that's the Antichrist. They are against who Jesus is. So obviously it mattered to these people, um, but that was 2,000 years ago. Like, why should it matter to us? Uh, And the next thing I want to point out is that this mattered to the church. Who Christ is, what we believe about him mattered to the church. And you can see, it's interesting to study church history, and you see over the the first few centuries after Jesus, um, which sounds like a lot to us, but is really not a ton when you think of multiple continents all communicating with each other back and forth without, you know, cellular, cellular devices and stuff. So in the first few centuries, uh, the church spreads out and it's in all of these different continents and they quickly run into like, okay, we've got these scriptures, but we need to unify. We need to know who do we consider a Christian? How do we know that we're on the same page about the most essential things? And so different bishops from Africa and Asia and Jerusalem and and over in Rome, like they started communicating back and forth and and talking together and you start to get these creeds. Um, And the creeds are, again, just the essentials, the basics. And the Nicene Creed, for instance, like the whole middle section is just about who do we believe Jesus is? And they say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, big word here, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. And for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now that's a handful of details, but when you think about the fact that some some churches have doctrinal statements that look like books, that's really pretty... (laughs) Simple, stripped down in terms of what we believe about Jesus. A few things I want to point out that I think are these essential ingredients you see in John. One is, uh, yeah, he, Jesus became a man, right? They say uh, he took on flesh, was born under the Virgin Mary, was incarnate, meaning he took on flesh, fully God, right? Uh, You see that in John, all of these assertions about the divinity of Jesus, and then you see it again in the church. And then also they mention he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which like Pontius Pilate, it's like a dude who has like a few verses in some of the gospels. And it's wild that he gets any airtime in a creed, um, right? I'm like, okay, I mean, cool. Uh, but I think in some, some of that's to root him in history. Like Jesus is not a concept of what would it be like if someone was fully God and fully man and that's how God redeemed his people. It's no, this was a real person. Look up Pontius Pilate, like, like, like this is when this happened, right? And so I think, yeah, there's 
uh, both who he is as fully God and fully man, and then this historicity, right? And you see the same thing in John at the very beginning. He's like, what we've looked at, what we've seen with our eyes and our hands have touched, right? He's same thing with Peter. He's, you know, we didn't follow cleverly dis, uh, disguised fables. Like he's, you know, they, they say we knew a real person, which is so important. Um, going back to the analogy of being in the ocean and looking up and charting, you know, where you're going based on the North Star, you can imagine what would happen if just one night the North Star just shifted a few degrees in the sky. And you based all of your navigational calculations on that North Star. You would, I did the math. <laughs> you, you would end up like, like is it, if it shifted like five degrees, you'd end up like 300 miles away from where you wanted to go if you were crossing the ocean. Uh, all that to say that while a lot of the tiny details of what we believe about scriptural interpretation and politics and stuff like that, a lot of those really are ancillary and can be pushed to the side. If we don't get a few things about Jesus right, it can seem small, but we'll end up in a totally different place from Jesus. So <clears throat> we're going to do a quick little heresy review. The first one. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what happened pretty quickly, and as Brandon was mentioning, it kind of blew people's minds that uh, these Christians were claiming that Jesus was actually God and actually a person. And so usually one of those two will get fudged on a little bit. Uh, and there was one heresy, uh, I want to say in the fourth century, called the Arian heresy. This is different from like Arian, like you know, white. <laughs> um, it's, it's named after this guy named Arius, right? Uh, and Arius really seems, you know, you read about him, and at first you're like, well, he has a heresy named after him. He probably sucks a little bit, right? Um, but you, you like, you learn about him, you're like, I think this guy was trying. You know what I mean? Like, I think he was actually trying to make Jesus palatable, and I don't think he, his heart was in like a terrible place, um, which I think just goes to show you know, we don't have to be a villain to be wrong. Um, but he basically claimed that, okay, because Jesus is God's son uh, and sons uh, are born after their fathers, then he can't be eternal, which means that he's not quite as divine as his father. He's God-ish, right? So Arius, uh, there are these two, you know, I want to say they were Greek. They might have been Latin. These two words, uh, homosia and homoesia. Basically, he said, Jesus isn't made of the same stuff as God. He's made of similar stuff. He's God-ish, right? Which, I don't know, like, I could see being there, you know, before, before everyone agreed that was a heresy and being like, okay, you know, okay. Like, <laughs> I can get down with that. But, the church pretty quickly said, nah. <laughs> uh, and all of these different uh, church fathers agreed that you cannot do that. You can't remove the full divinity of Jesus. And so hence in the Nicene Creed, very early on in church history, they have that word, he's consubstantial with the father. He's made of the same stuff as the father. Why does that matter? 
Well, if we remove Jesus' divinity, we remove his lordship, which means that he has not only no say in our lives, but he also doesn't have the ability to transform us, right? We don't, you, you wouldn't put your hope to fully make you new in just a person. Like that's something that we believe that God can do, right? And if he's not divine, then he doesn't have power over sin and death. So he can't save us, right? And so if you fudge on Jesus' divinity, it might feel at first like, hey, we're just making this easier to, to swallow as a concept. But in reality, all of the things that we hope in as Christians, you have to have Jesus be God. You can't mess around with that. And I think a lot of us believe, again, like up here at the intellectual level, like, yes, 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 yes. Like Jesus is fully God. Like I, I heard that. Oh, it's called the hypostatic union. Like, oh, I've heard about that. Um, but again, if we're Christians, then our Christology should be reflected in our whole selves. And so I think it's worth asking, okay, well, does my attitude towards the teachings and commandments of Jesus reflect a heart that believes that he is God? And, and do I have total allegiance and trust that trusts that he, as God, knows what's best? And does my worship of Jesus reflect a heart that sees him as an almighty God who is good? Um, Again, how can we expect Jesus to save and transform our whole lives if we won't place our whole selves under his authority as God? So the next heresy, boom, is fudging on the fully man thing. And a lot of people did this. Um, especially there was a lot of Greek philosophy going on at the time since Greece was kind of fresh still and Rome was Hellenized. And uh, they were like, dude, physical stuff sucks. Like, <laughs> like physical body is the worst. Um, and so there was, all, there was this idea that like every person you see, every tree you see is like a pale representation of the ideal human, the ideal, ideal tree, right? And so the idea of God becoming a person with a body, like again, hard sell. And so from a marketing perspective, that was my degree. From a marketing perspective, it's like, hey, all right, <laughs> like let's, all right, listen, we'll get a higher adoption early on uh, if we go ahead and fudge on that a little bit. And so people started to fudge on that. Um, there was this heresy called docetism, which said, yeah, our flesh is evil. So Jesus can't really be human. He just like appeared human, like a, like a mirage, right? Um, and this belief and others like it were condemned around the same time as the Council of Nicaea at the Council of Constantinople. Um, and yeah, again, they said, no, it's fully a person. So why does that matter to us? Well, I think if you remove Jesus' humanity, for one, I think what's so powerful about Jesus being a human is that it means that God can empathize with us. Like all of the difficulties of life, physically, emotionally, spiritually, like he can empathize, he understands. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, we don't have a high priest in Jesus 
who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And again, um, a Jesus that didn't fully take on humanity cannot fully redeem humanity. I'm not going to sit in that topic for too long, but um, there is this idea uh, in, in church theology that is still prominent, uh, which I think is good, is that, uh, that it's that which is not assumed is not redeemed. We're getting real academic. Don't worry, it's going to get less academic. But the idea there is that Jesus is a forerunner. That's what Hebrews 6 calls him. He's a forerunner. He, he came down as God, but took on humanity to show us how to live. He showed us what is a human meant to be, right? And so we're meant to follow in his footsteps, to engage in the life that he did. And that's how he redeems us. So he took on our humanity so he could redeem it. So if he only kind of took on our humanity, he can only kind of redeem it. Uh, that was something that was said by St. Gregory the Theologian in Constantinople. Um, and I was reading this, uh, this Orthodox Christian named Marcelo Souza. And they said, reflecting on this, they said, why does Christology matter? Because God has come to us to redeem, to save, to heal the entirety of us. And that gives us the power and responsibility to live entirely new lives, body and soul, by the power of the Spirit and holiness for eternal life. He has done it for us and calls us to join him. In positive terms, the word of God takes on the entirety of human nature, body, soul, spirit, mind, everything except sin, to unite us to his divine nature in his divine person in order to fully heal humanity. So the church considered the humanity of Jesus how he heals our humanity. And I don't know about you, but whenever I think of my humanity, I think could use a little healing. Finally, the historical what happens if we fudge on the historicity? Historical-ish. Um, yeah, I think the difficulty here is if you don't guard the fact that Jesus was a historically grounded person, a couple things can happen. One, people can just claim he's a myth. You know, oh, Jesus was someone that Christians came up with to help them feel better, I guess, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, if you, if you detach him from being real and historical, it's so easy to be, well, okay, he didn't exist. Um, but I think what you also see happening is that when you detach Jesus from his actual historical self, what he actually said, where he actually lived, the fact that he was a Jewish man, people will try to co-opt him for other things. So that's a different kind of Aryan heresy, right? <laughs> to just ignore the Jewishness of Jesus, say, oh, he's white. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you ignore who Jesus actually was in his context, in his particularity, then it's so easy to turn him into something that he wasn't. Yeah. So now let's take it to the present. These are some beliefs, you know, and what, what I think I'm trying to communicate here is that our ideas have consequences 
And that while there's so many details that we can disagree on, Jesus is the one that we should all be looking at. Um, but yeah, let's talk about what makes for good Christology now. Uh, and the first thing, which I'll be real quick on, good Christology, like we've been saying, it has a solid foundation, right? So you can imagine, again, if you're, if you're building on something and the foundation's ever so slightly off or ever so slightly tilted, the more you build on that, the worse it's going to get, right? So good Christology has a few main things, a few essential characteristics there. And it's our source of unity as the church. Um, I know, again, that we disagree on a lot of things, but I I want for us to (laughs) be able to look at each other and at the church across history and the church across the world and know that we have Jesus in common, right? So good Christology provides a solid foundation. Uh, But the next one, good Christology lets Jesus speak for himself, which means that we unite around the person of Jesus and not our idea of Jesus. And I'm going to make up a few modern day heresies. The heresy that does not let Jesus speak for himself, I'm going to call the heresy of coloring book Jesus. That you have this basic outline of like, okay, I believe Jesus and I believe he's, he's God, I think. Um, but then it's just kind of there and I get to be the one to color in the details. Um, and you can't do that. When you're okay uh, drawing your own Jesus, when you're okay filling in your own details of who Jesus is, then you start to be okay drawing your own moral landscape, right? If you're okay telling God, who he is, rather than letting him tell you who you are, then essentially you just walk around with a can of spray paint, whatever you're standing, spray a circle, and you say, this is right, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Too uh, not generous enough is whatever is slightly less than how much money I give. You know, too much lust is whatever is slightly more than how much I lust, right? If you're okay telling God who he is, then you're okay making your own moral landscape. And that's so dangerous. How do we do this? Uh, Brandon mentioned to me how he sometimes hears people say, well, the Jesus I know would never do that, right? Like, like maybe you see something in someone's heart that's kind of ugly or, or you see a direction they're going in life that's not good and you confront them on it and in the moment they feel a little attacked and it hurts their feelings a little bit. And they say, the Jesus I know would never hurt my feelings. <laughs> and it's like, ah, uh. <laughs> the gospel of John is essentially like, like Jesus' greatest hits of just arguing with people, <laughs> people misunderstanding him. There's a moment where, where Jesus, I don't remember which gospel it is, but he is like talking to the Pharisees and he's like, you brood of vipers, your father's the devil. And the disciples go, don't you know that you're offending them? And it's like, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Like, I think so. But again, if we don't continuously come to Jesus and try to see what does he think about this? What does he say? Then it's just human nature. We're going to fill in the details ourselves. 
right? So a good Christology seeks continuously to let Jesus speak for himself. Um, I've heard some people that whenever they read about a topic or whenever they read scripture, the first thing they do is reflect on what do I want to be true? Because I know that that's going to kind of tilt me in that direction the whole time. And I'll say, I'm not saying, oh, like, let Jesus speak for himself. And every time Jesus speaks for himself, you're going to see that he actually hates everybody. Like what Austin was saying last night, like Jesus, when you speak for himself, I think you see just how good he is. Not that he's some ugly guy and that the, uh, the nice parts of Christianity are the parts we made up, you know. Um, I think it's also whenever we just say, oh, I think Jesus is like this. And we proceed to just narrow him down to one attribute. Jesus is all about accepting people. And I'm like, yes, in so many ways, but he's also about transforming us, right? Like he's all about justice. And I'm like, yes, in so many ways, but also he's full of grace. Um, Where does the temptation to um, color in our own Jesus come from? I think for one, we need to recognize that as young people living in just swimming around in the pool of postmodernism that we are hardwired to distrust anything that has been told to us by an institution, right? So if if the church says something about who Jesus is, or if if they've passed down the Bible and it says something about who Jesus is, we don't trust that, right? Because we've seen so many politicians be liars and we've, we've just kind of deconstructed everything so early in life. So I think there's a distrust in this sort of like, no one else can tell me what to believe because they're always going to do it to take advantage of me. So I need to figure out what to believe. But then I think there's laziness. Uh, just that, you know, I, I think in general, Jesus should be able to speak for himself, but I don't have the time to go listen to what he has to say. Um, and then I think there's pride that I already know, you know, like I think sometimes the Jesus I know would never, you know, would never do this. Like we, we think that kind of thing. We say that kind of thing because I think that my relationship with God is more valid than yours. And so that means that I have carte blanche to just kind of do what I want in terms of what I believe. The next one, uh, good Christology is rich. And I don't mean rich like money. I mean rich like intricate, vibrant, alive. The heresy here, which I think is more subtle, I'm going to call the heresy of the two-dimensional Jesus, right? Which we're just given this basic idea of Jesus. Jesus loves me, died on the cross for my sins, given that as a child. And you're like, okay, I got the basics, right? I got the North Star, right? So I'm, I'm good. And you, you don't continue to develop a more and more robust just picture of who Jesus is in your heart. And what I want to say here is that if Jesus seems too simple to fascinate you for your whole life, if Jesus is too simple for you, it's because you're a simpleton. <laughs> Like if he's, if he's boring, it's not him. Okay. <laughs> Cause he's fascinated people for generations across the entire world. A lot of whom aren't even self-proclaimed Christians, but he still fascinates them and they want to know more about him. 
So if Jesus is too simple for you, get some glasses. <laughs> if there's no details for you, get some glasses. Uh, and you can see this in, in 1 John. This is wild. So how many of y'all actually got to read 1 John? I, you, know, you don't have to show your hands. Okay, it's cool, 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 cool. You know, I'm not here to shame anybody. Also, it takes 15 minutes. So if you haven't gotten to, just poop and read it. Uh, I'm sorry I said that. But yeah, it's like, it's easy to do. <laughs> but uh, a lot of times, I don't know, it's my temptation as someone who's like a seminary student to try and read scripture and map it out, right? Like, okay, this is point A, point B, and this is how they feed into each other. First John does not lend itself very easily to that. Uh, and what you kind of see is there's these themes of, of Jesus' flesh and of, of love and of love for one another and of generosity and light and life and darkness. And, and he, John is just kind of stirring them all together. It's like looking at a kaleidoscope. And so to aid writing this sermon, at one point I sat down and I was like, you know, mind maps, like if you you have a central theme and you draw it out and you make all these connections. And I was like, I just want to get an idea of what John is trying to say about Jesus. So I started making a mind map of just what is he saying about Jesus? Uh, and after three chapters out of five, just three chapters of this book, you can throw up the next slide. This is what it started to look like. And this is a short letter. And it seems simple because he says very similar things over and over again. But, and y'all don't, don't worry about trying to read that. <laughs> the, the point I'm making is that you read 1 John, and I think it's a guy who's a pastor who has had decades to just steep in who Jesus is. And Jesus, it's hit a point where he captures his whole imagination where he thinks in terms of God. He thinks in terms of Jesus. Jesus makes sense of the world to him. Jesus is as real and as complicated and as amazing as our own brain. Quick side note, something that's really cool is that you can start on basically any point in this, in this mind map and it will trace back to love <laughs> at some point, which I think is really cool. Um, if you can throw up the next slide, it reminded me of this. This is a map of a literal human brain, just a section of a human brain. This is like a neural network, right? And, and that's what it reminded me of is that, is that John has essentially been thinking about Jesus so long that he has like a Jesus brain. Like he's forming all these connections. He's like, oh my goodness. Like, okay, God is life because <laughs> he is love. And he's like, he's, you know, he's making all these connections and it just you can tell that he just thinks about Jesus throughout the day and that he hasn't stopped making new connections, discovering new things. And I think that's so cool. And my hope for y'all and my heart for y'all, among many other things, is that you would develop Jesus brains. Um, that you would be a group of students who, who is filled with wonder about Jesus. I think curiosity is a spiritual gift to just wonder about him and, and just want to learn more about him. I want y'all to be geeked out <laughs> about Jesus, a bunch of geeked out Christologists. Um, and I think this means that we don't just learn about Jesus at a basic level, but we contemplate him. 
I think as, as college students, we don't know how to contemplate. We're, we're so used to studying for a test. It's not about a test. It's about getting to know him. Um, there's this book I read that it's this, this young man's story of, of his spiritual journey. And at one point he meets this Orthodox monk who lives out in the mountains in this monastery. And this monk just immediately understands him and gets to know him. Um, but this man named Father Paisos, he looks at, at this young man and he says, would it be all right if I took a walk around in your head? If I just kind of saw what there was to see? And that's what I want for us to want to do with Jesus. Just to get to dive in, to take a walk around inside his head. Just be, you know, why was that what you said? Why was that what came to mind for you when you were talking to that person? Jesus, what do you think about this? That's a great question to ask throughout your day. God, what do you think about this? And you, and you develop a way to think. Ronnie uh, is here. He always says, if you get God right, you get everything else right. Yeah, I want us to learn to think in terms of Jesus. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a, a prayer for that. There's a, there's a couple other ingredients, but I want to pause and say a prayer for that. God, I just ask that you would show yourself to us, um, that we would see that you are always fresh, that we don't need to learn new truths about you, but that there are always new connections we can make, new ways that you can impact our heart, um, and just that we would be filled with wonder about you and be more curious about you than we are about any of our hobbies or any of our jobs or any of our dreams. Jesus, I just ask that you would capture our imaginations. Amen. So the next one, good Christology changes how you live. You can tell that's what's happening because the line was going that way and then now it's going that way. So that's cool. Uh, the, the heresy that came to mind here, I'm gonna call the heresy of sidecar Jesus. Y'all know like motorcycle sidecars? <laughs> <laughs> which is a little bit like antiquated. Like when's the last time y'all saw a motorcycle sidecar? But y'all know what they are, right? Like, so yeah, someone's driving the motorcycle and there's just this sidecar that's attached to it. And they have, they're there with you. Sweet, they're attached to you. Dope. They have no ability to steer. And I think that is what I'm trying to get at is that if we believe certain things about Jesus and he does not change how we live, it's as if we were like, listen, I'm still driving. Don't worry, I got it. Please, it would be wonderful. It, it would be my honor if you would sit in my sidecar and ride around with me as we go where we go, right? Uh, golly, I had this experience come to mind shortly after getting married. Um, my wife and I went on our honeymoon and we got back and we had this long list of, of chores and things that we had to get done because we had moved in now as married people and there's a lot to figure out. And uh, for some reason, my brain was just not working. Like I could not think at all. I was like staring at the wall and we like ran an errand and I got back and I like ran into the gutter by the covered parking <laughs> in our apartment complex. Probably, probably said something I shouldn't have. And, and I got, I like walked up stairs to our apartment and I like sat down and I was like, Kaylee, I think I just need to be alone for a little bit and to, to pray and just figure out what's going on. Uh, and pretty immediately 
I felt like God steered me towards John 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. And he kind of, he pointed out to me, he said, he said, right, I'm paraphrasing from essentially an intuition, <laughs> but he said, he, <laughs> he said, right, you've been married for how long? And I was like, eight days. And he was like, he's like, cool, great, congrats. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> uh, and he said, he said, he said, how, how many times have you talked to me? And I said, like 0.3 times. <laughs> and he was like, and you've been talking to your wife about, oh, I want to build a culture as a family. Like we're creating who we're going to be. And he's like, do you want to be someone who does not build with me? Like you're, you're developing a habit right now that's going to last throughout life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No, nothing fruitful, nothing life-giving. And first of all, immediately, uh, the fog that was over me lifted. But it was something that kind of, sometimes you learn a lesson about God in your head, and then later you learn it in a way that it sinks into your, your viscera. You know what I mean? You just feel it. And I was like, okay, you can get out of the sidecar now. I've learned my lesson. And I learned my lesson for a good day or so. Um, so yeah, why do we put Jesus in the sidecar? I think one of them is selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. That's simple. <laughs> uh, I think another one is pride, that to admit we need help means that we're, we're less than or we failed in some way. And no, I don't need help. I think another reason that we don't want to let Jesus call the shots in our lives and change how we live is fear. That's like, man, if I actually take Jesus seriously and actually seek to obey his commandments and I give him the steering wheel and I sing, <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Uh, then he'll steer us into a cliff. Or worse, the cross. <laughs> right? I think sometimes we're afraid of where Jesus might lead us, uh, which he does call us to count the cost. So I think a little bit of that might come from a, a decently healthy place. One that came to mind this morning that I added is just despair. I think sometimes it's selfishness, but I think sometimes there's just this belief that, no, my life is destined to go off the cliff. And I don't think Jesus wants to take the wheel. I don't think he wants to call the shots in my life. I don't think I'm capable of changing how I live. This is what I'm meant for. I'm going to go careen over the edge. I'm going to be dead by 27. I meet a staggering number of people who that's how they think. They're like, I can't picture life past 30. It doesn't occur to me that I might have a job someday, that I might get married someday, that I might be secure someday. So I think sometimes we don't take the steps in following Jesus because we're afraid that there's nothing there. And we, we just think that this is what we're meant for. And I want to say that's a lie. If you think about what would Satan want to convince me of, that seems like it would be at the top of the list. Oh, this can't be different. Jesus can't actually change you. He wouldn't do that. You can't give in to that despair. And I think a good Christology lets Jesus take the wheel and obeys him because of hope and because of faith. So Jesus shows himself, issues a call to action, and then he transforms us. Uh, and again, this is all over 1 John. 1 John 1, he's like, God is light. And then he immediately starts talking about living in the light and confessing your sins. And then he talks about how God then takes that and uses it to transform us, right? So he's like, here's who God is. Here's who Jesus is. 
Here's how to live in light of that. Here's how he's going to honor that choice. Chapter two connects knowing that Jesus is light to loving our brothers and sisters. It says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. It also connects knowing Jesus to no longer loving the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that you, you let him change what you're interested in, what you care about. And this goes on throughout 1 John and throughout Paul's writings. There's kind of this continuous, okay, who do we believe God is and how should that completely <laughs> transform our identities and our goals and how we live? And again, I think this is a good time to pause and I'll pray a prayer again over us that we would live in light of that. God, I just ask that you would Show us how we've put you in the sidecar. Show us how we've put you in the passenger seat. Um, whether that comes from a selfishness we need to repent of, uh, a fear that we need to repent of and believe the good news of who you are, despair, whatever it might be. I'm sure there are things I'm not thinking of. But God, I just know that anytime you call someone to be obedient, you also call them to be courageous. Uh, and you also say that you'll go with them so I just ask that you would um, just help us to obey you in hearts of faith, knowing that you'll be with us. In your name I pray. The last one, good Christology gives life. That's supposed to be a tree on the L. Good Christology gives life. The heresy here might take some explaining, but the one that came to mind is, is water to mildew Jesus. So you know how in John 2, Jesus turned water to wine? And it's like, whoa, he took this ceremonial water that people use for washing their hands, and he turned it into really good wine. That's amazing. <laughs> I think sometimes we have this water to mildew Jesus, meaning, yeah, we have a starting point, And then the faith that I was given as a child just stays there and slowly just gets mildewy and gross, right? That it's like, and, and, and good faith is just trying to drum up the feelings that you once had when you first started to follow God and that he's not actually transforming you, right? I think that can be easy to believe sometime because change takes decades. But the reality is water to wine Jesus, a Jesus who takes our selfishness and our scarcity and just our propensity to careen towards death and replaces it with abundant life and love. That's the reality of who Jesus is. First uh, John 5 says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. That last part, whoever has the son has life, has been kind of pinging around in my head for the last few days. And just thinking about what does that mean? First of all, what does it mean to have the son? I'm not 100% sure, but I think trying to contemplate him and follow him and be with him is a good starting point. And I, and I, and I do believe that we have the son because Jesus has given himself to us. And he says, whoever has the son has life. That's so cool. And uh, John 7, 37, uh, Jesus is at this, this festival 
um, that was all, it was this Jewish festival concerning water. And they would essentially thank God for providing rain to water their crops. And they would, whoop, and they would pray for more rain. Um, and Jesus, on the last and greatest day of the festival, it says, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It says, by this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. I think when we actually come to Jesus, he takes those parts of us that just feel empty and disappointed and gross and don't know if that could ever change. And somehow he takes that person and those weak parts of our heart and he makes living water come out. He takes people that are, that are thirsty, who just want something different, who life is hard for, and somehow the extent to which they're able to love other people and bless them, it doesn't add up. Like that's what knowing Jesus does. Jesus gives us newness and transforms us. I was trying to think of where I've seen that transformation in my life. And one thing that came to mind is there's a running joke on the UTD pastoral team that a handful of us are like aggressively empathetic. And sometimes we all sit together and they call it the empathy couch. And they're just like, they're probably going to cry at some point, right? Uh, and I don't know. Yeah, I've like got this reputation from people who met me recently as someone who like, man, like he's always sad about somebody and he cares and like he knows things. And, and it's, I laughed to myself because in high school, a very common thing, I'd be talking to my friends, they'd be like, did you see so-and-so is not doing well? Did you hear about this? You know, what happened there? And I would just never notice other people. I did not care. Uh, there was a time when I was, I want to say 13, and one of my friends, like my best friend's dad, had a stroke. And I heard about it, and I was playing video games, and I kept playing video games. And I don't know if that was because I was emotionally repressed or what, but whatever it was, it was an issue. And I can tell you I was heading further and further towards numbness and not caring about people. And something happened where a switch flipped and I cared about people. And there were aspects of it where I had to learn some hard lessons and have some hard conversations with people. But when I look back, ugh, at when that changed, um, it literally was just a moment when I was 19 or 20 and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna spend this year trying to get to know Jesus. And yeah, I didn't know a ton about, it's not like I took a psychology class and that's how I learned to read people or I, I got therapy and that's how I learned to have emotions. I'm not downplaying therapy. It's very good. I've also had therapy since then. <laughs> but that's when it happened is when I came to Jesus and what he wanted to do in my life, I don't know what he wants to do in your life, but what he wanted to do in my life is make me someone who is able to feel for people and love people. And I know he wants to do the same for you. He wants to transform you uh, and make you someone who, when people say things about you that are good, you're like, that's funny. 
That's not me. <laughs> Jesus wants to do that. Worship team, y'all can, y'all can come up. Yeah, good Christology gives life because it connects us to a good God who is life. It gives life because it, it makes the way for the Spirit to live in us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And I believe that those are the things that, that when we actually let Jesus speak for himself, seek to follow him, let our hearts be saturated with him, be fascinated by him, I believe that that's the fruit of that. So I'm going to pray one last prayer over us, and then we'll worship a little more. God, I ask, first of all, that you would help us to trust that you do give life. And just as we reflect on who you are, I just ask that for, for each person in this room, um, that you would just ping our hearts in some way, that we would love you a little bit more and see you a little bit better. I know you intend to show yourselves to us, and I ask that you would do that for the remainder of this weekend and just the remainder of our lives. And I just ask for transformation, that your fingerprints would be on all of the people in this room. Let's hear my prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you.